0: Exit for Podcast is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. For all things comics, movies, media, music, and more, check out the Cage Club Network. That's cageclub.me.
1: Welcome back to all new, all different Uncanny X's for Podcast, where we examine the Uncanny X-Men comic book franchise as it begins its multi-title 80s expansion.
0: I'm your host Jonah. And I'm Nico, and man, we really hope you survive the experience, because today we have a doozy for you. When I think about famous runs there's always those issues that stand out whether it's because they're super magical or super strange or whether it's flowers for rhino or it's the death of captain marvel graphic novel there's just certain issues that kind of like are burned into your brain hole right and for me uncanny x-men 151 and 152 are exactly that but before we even get into all that jonah buddy boyfriend beautiful. We've had so many people join this show. I feel like it's been so long since it's been the two
1: of us. It absolutely has been. We've been covering so many different... Um, ancillary X titles that we've brought on so many great people and we've have, we have so many people giving commentary of wonderful comics in general that it's hard to just find the time for me and you just to talk about the X-Men, which is what the original project was. But I, to be fair, I really love how, our team and how expensive we're getting. We basically are just the X-Men.
0: I completely agree. And it's sort of like where the franchise X-Men with all the different titles, even though we're not quite there yet. It's been really exciting. And one of the things I think that's really exciting is the cyclical nature of Claremont's storytelling is starting to really come into focus. Emma Frost, who is going to be an hour two parter this week, was originally introduced in Kitty Pride's first issues. Now, this story sees Kitty Pride possibly leave the X Men as Emma Frost returns to the book's pages. There's kind of like a magical cycle to these things. Everything sort of comes around in its due. And This might be the first really, like, Claremontian mega villain that resurfaces, with the exception of perhaps Arcade. But other than this, it's been a lot of, like, Garak, Sauron. This is the first really Claremontian return, and, you know, Jonah, it's so fitting that we should record some Emma Frost-related material, because I believe you just nabbed one of your wishlist comics.
1: Yes, I was very fortunate enough to find a really decent copy of Uncanny X-Men number 131 and I want it specifically because Emma's front and center on the cover and she is one of my favorite characters so I'm so happy to be able to get it and I'm so happy to see her return. You know, it's something we talked about with when we had the issues right before the X-Men went to the Savage Land fighting Magneto. It was a good amount of time between when we first saw Magneto fighting them in 104 to that new point. And now I feel like from 129 to 131, we've had a decent number of months in between last seeing Emma Frost. So I think it's a perfect time to bring her back and be the antagonist of an arc.
0: Absolutely. And what doesn't escape my notice though, is this is not the first appearance of the Hellfire Club or any of its members since the Dark Phoenix saga, as Sebastian Shaw has made a handful of appearances here and there. So it feels like Claremont is playing a bigger picture here. He's got a game in mind. The game is afoot! And what a foot it is! But the question is, whose foot? Foot. Now, Chris Claremont, as we're going to hear from the amazing Dr. Matthew later on, is no stranger to the love of the body swap. Good God. It's his favorite pastime. And one of the things I think that's so interesting about that is this really represents the first time we're seeing a true Claremont body swap. We've seen some possession here and there. We've seen a little bit, oh, I'm controlled by magic. But I kind of feel like you haven't seen two people switch bodies yet. No,
1: in all of the comics we have read, not even just the uncanny, all the Marvel team-ups, all the Marvel 2-in-1s, all the Marvel fanfares, everything, nobody swapped bodies. We've had possessions and people being mind-controlled. I don't even think this was ever a topic... Uh, when you cover the champions so it's really interesting to see what i would even say is like a common arc trope for comics and superheroes in general is body swapping now, this is the first instance we have of it
0: well before we can get into the best body swaps of sunrise bay season five part two <laughs> i think we need to know a little bit more about the stories at hand Uncanny
1: X-Men number 151 by Claremont, Sherman, McLeod, and Rubenstein, and Uncanny 152 by Claremont, McLeod, and Rubenstein has Kitty experience her last day at the x Mansion as her parents want to send the young mutant off to Emma Frost boarding school, and what was a sum up by Emma, the Hellfire Club tries to take down the X-Men with body swaps. Micronauts number 37 by Mantlo, Giffen, Laroque, and Bolandi sees their Micronauts fight off a new threat, Huntar, with the help of Nightcrawler in the X-Men's Danger Room. Marvel team up number 117-118 by J.M. Dematius, Trimp, Esposito, and Sharon sees Wolverine and Spider-Man be tested by an unknown foe, later revealed to be Professor Power. Professor Power calls upon Charles Xavier to save his son, whose mind is on the brink of breaking. After saying it's not possible, Power makes Charles psychically dual Mentallo, unfortunately killing Power's son in the crossfire.
0: Yeah, okay, so I guess when I said we have a doozy for you, what I should have said is we have two great issues, two alright issues, and one, oh my god, we just don't like Bill Mantlow on this show. <laughs> We just oh, No, sorry. Sorry, Bill. <laughs> right because like it's, it's weird because like I'm pretty sure I do like Bill Mantlo. Like I came into this into Bill Mantlo. So I'm really not sure what's happened. But I guess there's nowhere to start at the beginning. So Uncanny 151 and 152. It's such a cool number 151. I don't know. There really is something kind of incredible about 151. And to think about the fact that it's November of 1981, the X-Men are approaching their 20th anniversary. And somehow the books become about this young new mutant and she's so interesting and she's so smart and all of the x-men react to her in a way they've never reacted to anybody yeah everybody wanted to take care of gene but there was always kind of like a sexual element to that and the only person who wants to metal stup her is colossus everybody else is just like hey girl bff so i'm so excited about where we are at 151 i'm made uncomfortable by body swaps as a rule but i actually like this story for the most part it's kind of like that buffy faith body swap in season four of buffy it's another one that just stands out i guess body swaps stand out in general anyway so there's a really unique and Res storytelling device attached to this two-parter that i am not a fan of actually for my money and for my sake i feel like this story starts way too n media res it starts with xavier being like okay pack your shit time to go And she's just like, no, I don't wanna. And Xavier's like, nope, you gotta. And she's like, okay. And it it just starts with everybody finding out the news. There's no ramp up. There's no, Kitty, we received a correspondence from your parents. It's just, we have already received a correspondence from Kitty's parents and she has to go. There's something weird about that. And then again, when Emma as Storm is already on to... Storm as Emma with passed out Kitty in the car right away with Sebastian waiting in the wings. Like, there's just a little bit too much. Everybody's already aware of what's going on at the start of this for
1: me. I completely agree. And I think this is a weird story because instead of, as you said, ramping up, it starts in the middle of what should have been the ramp up, but it takes a very long time for us to get to where we need to get to for the action to start. And, I mean, I understand that Charles psychically probed Kitty's parents and was like, "Ah, there's nothing unusual here. But, like, nobody wanted to question them wanting to send Kitty to Emma Frost's boarding school. Emma Frost, you know, who tried to kill them, tied them up, basically bondage tortured them all. Yeah, nobody saw anything wrong with this, and... They, nobody wanted to fight them, and I understand Kitty's a young girl, and this is an extreme change to try to put her through. So her reaction of feeling unwanted by everyone and feeling like that everyone's going to forget her is really upsetting, and it's really hard to see, and it's even harder to see Storm be the one to drive her off and send her to school. You know, it's kind of like a parent dropping their kid off at college, except. This time, instead of actually going home and, you know, having empty net syndrome, you're taken over by a white lady with a, can I speak to the manager haircut?
0: And you know what? That white lady with that, can I speak to that manager haircut? Let's talk about it for a second, because does it seem like Kitty is the one who stumbles onto the fact that Emma Frost runs this school? Does it not seem like Storm could find this? Like, and this is pre-internet, so there's even a part of me that wants to be like, maybe Storm is just not internet savvy, although I can't imagine for one moment that Storm is not internet savvy, because if anybody's going to know how to get her hands on all the most exotic succulents, it's going to be Aurora. Monroe, and I just, there's something about the way this whole story is rushed together that doesn't sit right with me as much as I love all of the elements otherwise. I even love how much of this story is from Emma's perspective, and that was one of the things that took me the most by surprise. You know something has to be wrong when Storm's interaction with Emma isn't paid off on the same page, or at least before Storm again sees Emma. You have to know something's up. But it isn't until that, like, four pages where Storm Emma is just like, uh, this body's great. I love it. Lightning. That it's like, oh, wow, you know what? Yeah, Emma Frost has thoughts and a mind and ideas. There's something really interesting about that.
1: And I think that's what makes Marvel slash the X Men villain so great because we saw it in Magneto in 150 how he was very, he became very nuanced and there was a lot more to his character. We're seeing a lot more to Emma's character in this and that. She is a real person, you know, Emma. We saw it kind of a little bit in that one classic that we read, uh, the one classic backup that we read, but Emma has to constantly be on guard because the world is kind of out to get her. Even the people that she's supposed to be able to trust, she can't really trust. So having that element of freedom of being in Storm's body and letting loose with lightning really speaks volume of how put together in stiff Emma has to be and when she's given the ability to break a little bit from that very stiff character she can be you know loose and
0: I love that you're bringing that up because that's in my notes as well but I also added that she's the one who's like okay enough fun Time to get back to work. I didn't do this for funsies. And I think the reason I find that so fascinating is because she is even saying, oh my God, this is amazing, but it's time to be responsible. And I think that's an interesting turn. What I do not find to be an interesting turn is emma and shaw being intimate i find it shocking that they drew him being romantically intimate with a black woman at this point interracial romance is still kind of like not everybody's favorite but yeah i don't care for shaw and emma being together in any way No, and it really
1: doesn't make sense to me because we saw in that one classic, Emma's goal is to basically run and own the Hellfire Club, and she kind of makes it seem like she wants to do it on her own when she's having that interesting psychic chess battle with Mastermind. So it doesn't make much sense to me why she would be romantically involved with Shaw unless it's a ploy to help further her agenda, but she's genuinely seems into Shaw, which it just doesn't make sense. It seems a little shoehorn romance. i don't think it's necessary
0: and you know i love that you brought up x-men classic we've done what we can to get the fuck away from it but the truth is we're still going to be talking about it for a while at this point x-men classic still hasn't started yet we are as a matter of fact another 50 plus issues from the start of x-men classic and are 50 plus issues from the point it's going to start back at x-men classic started in the early 200s of uncanny x-men's run and and harkened back to the era of Giant Size in 94. So I agree with you. There's something really difficult to reconcile all the time about this vast number of stories. But before we get to the stuff that comes after this, I want to jump back into a part of the narrative that's really fascinating. I feel like Colossus and Kitty's love affair grew organically over time. I didn't feel like... Colossus one day was like oh I'm gonna bang this teenager I feel like it grew for him and he had to learn to let her in it was a process and I feel like there's a lot of really telling moments where he says that is if you want to hear from me it's he's willing to do the work he's gonna write her letters and that sounds so silly and so foolish But a guy like Colossus could wander into the town and get anybody to touch any part of him. The fact that he is willing to be chaste and demure for this young woman whom he's going to have to have an extended, long-distance relationship with, that actually does say something really positive about Colossus for me. I at least believe that he believes the love that he frequently feels is true. I mean, it was
1: seated in 129, Kitty's first remark about Colossus is that he's very cute. And while, before I say this, how old is Colossus? I believe he's about 19. Okay. So like, the I, I can say this, the age discrepancy does kind of get me a little wary because Kitty is so young, but I really do appreciate Colossus trying to go above and beyond to prove to Kitty that, hey... I'm not trying to mess with you in any kind of way. I know you're fragile and you might not understand everything being so young romantically, but I really do like you. I'm going to push myself to do something that is very hard for me to do because who would have thunk the man who could hold to cold steel is very sheltered and withholding of his emotions, but he's going to try, damn it.
0: And there's so much about this arc that for me is about emotional trial. And I love that. That's, I think, what I love about this arc. Kitty has to reconcile her reality. She needs to come to terms with the fact that she's being sent away to Emma Frost's school. And while we don't really get a sense of her at Emma Frost's school here, I promise you that story chapter is not closed forever. We see Storm come to terms with having to lose another important woman in her life. We see Logan have to come due for his actions and we see kurt's love of amanda put her in harm's way yet again we see the sentinels show up and scott and xavier find themselves in old familiar shoes there's something really awesome about the way the pieces of this story come together i love amanda sitting there making her sigils with her magic and there's just so many cool things that come together i think the easier thing for me to would be to say the three things i don't think worked about this arc number one I really have an issue with it that the thing that tells Kitty that Storm is Storm is her ability to get out of the knots she's in. While I loved Storm using her lockpicking skills despite being trapped in Emma's body, I did not care for a skill that any telepath could easily learn being the tipping point that convinced Kitty that that was in fact Aurora in Emma's body. Yeah,
1: that's, um, Kitty remarks that any statement that she would say that, or Emma could say to prove that she is Storm doesn't make sense because Emma is a telepath and a psychic and she can read thoughts, so she would obviously just be able to read Kitty's thoughts to know the answer to something. But for Kitty, as smart as she is, doesn't consider that any form? Yeah, um, storm is the only person supposedly be able to break out of it but if you know how to make the knot, that means emma would know how to undo it
0: truly my number two problem with this arc is that logan goes down a little too hard a little too easy and even if part of him was faking it it hasn't been established in canon that logan's body is completely lined in adamantium yet i guess or something because if it has been established, then all of these Hellfire goons' hands should be broken because they're human beings punching adamantium over and over. Well, to be fair, that should
1: have happened in earlier Hellfire Club goons, but these Hellfire Club goons are actually part robot and now have moral dilemmas because that's what they needed.
0: Oh my god, it's going to get even more ridiculous when it comes to that. So I'm glad you're at least on the same page with me that there's something kind of like kerfluffy. Now, the one that really, like, the part where I go, no, 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 no. Is when Emma is like, I promise the Hellfire Club will never again darken your doorstep. And everybody's just like, we accept that. That's a reasonable promise coming from you, Emma Frost.
1: Uh, yeah, it's one of those things you can't really trust what a villain is going to say. Uh, it, it, you you can't. There's no there's no reason to take their word on something. Though it, to be fair, it did look like Shaw was extremely out of commission and probably won't be able to fight in any capacity for months
0: upon months of time. Well, we'll just see about that, won't we? <laughs> well, well, we will. <laughs> well. Before we can get to the return of any of these characters, we have an issue that comes directly on the heels of this one. Micronauts 37 directly references the events of 151, and yet again, Bill Mantlo writes a story featuring side characters that are like, up, oh, dup, The danger room is super exploded, oh man, and the X-Men are always mystified by fixing it.
1: I don't have a lot of words for this because this is a danger room issue. Not in main uncanny, but for some reason they felt the need to put it in micronauts. I don't, I don't get the point of this issue. This issue doesn't actually do anything. It doesn't add anything. I don't know who the micronauts are. I didn't really get much of a sense of who their characters are, though they look like the X-Men to me, I mean, even down to a red beast. Well,
0: the... Micronauts were another toy product line kind of like a Dazzler but not they were like the universe's tiniest heroes who could do all the biggest things or something I honestly don't have a strong enough background on the Micronauts everything I know about the Micronauts is either Micronauts 37 featuring the X-Men or the X-Men versus the Micronauts miniseries I don't have a very strong background on them the issue itself was kind of boring and fine I guess if I was a bigger Micronauts fan I might care there was a couple of cool takeaways like I appreciated getting a whole lot of Nightcrawler action. It does seem like when you can go for a random X-Man to appear in your book, you go for either Wolverine or Nightcrawler. I wonder if it's because Nightcrawler is so unique to draw.
1: I would say that, and also because of the characterization of Nightcrawler, he's very easygoing, very happy-go-lucky. He's really easy to shove into any issue because Nightcrawler can get along with anybody.
0: I'll give you that. Nightcrawler is definitely a really pleasant guy. Now, in terms of the Micronauts, this issue actually is significant. Uh, Hangar or um, Hungar, or Hantar, whatever his name was, he is going to eventually become a Micronaut. So this was his first appearance. That's
1: pretty interesting, considering that it seems, from what I gathered from this issue, it seems like the Micronauts tend to gather allies, which is pretty cool. I think my main problem stems from Micronaut 37 kind of reads like it would have been Micronaut 1. There was so much exposition thrown into this, and I understand that's probably to tie into people who are X-Men fans reading this for the X-Men appearances, but there's a lot of exposition that I don't... If there's 37 issues of Micronauts, a Micronauts fan would know all of this already.
0: I agree with you. One of my notes was that I could tell that that 10 pages, it's like page 3 to 13 or something, is just all the Micronauts talking about being the Micronauts. It felt very much like this was designed to make it easier for new fans of the X-Men that were reading Micronauts for the first time ever to understand what they were reading, but I felt personally like I had too much content thrown at me. I didn't feel like this read organically. I felt like this was like, start to love the Micronauts immediately! Whether or not you wanted to, by forced exposition. I completely agree, and it. If- also,
1: felt when I say nothing happened, there a lot of this action relies on the Danger Room and Hunt are trying to destroy the Micronauts, but nothing comes out of it. Too much of this issue is spent on giving information to characters, and it almost would have suited it better if it slowed the action down a bit in a couple more pages and panels and pulled an classic X-Men number one, where it retold the events of giant size men number one in three panels you could have did that
0: yeah i see what you mean you could have montaged us over kind of like hitting us with a wall of pros. Well, from that appearance of the X-Men, I guess there's nowhere to go but to the Marvel team-up two-parter in 117 and 118. Well, this is not a strict two-parter, 117 features Spider-Man teaming up with Wolverine for a story that is total nonsense. And that leads into Spider-Man and Wolverine being at Xavier's teaming up with Professor Xavier for what is one of the weirdest, most uncomfortable two-parters I've had to read in a while.
1: I completely agree. It was, oh, th- th- I have no idea what the purpose of these two issues were supposed to be. I, I really think that s- they were trying to buy time for something because there was no, I have no faith that anybody would actually put these two issues out if they didn't have to.
0: You know, and I think it's one of those cases where the idea behind the story was stronger than what the story ultimately became. It feels to me, perhaps, like the idea of a fight in which Wolverine and Spider-Man were being watched the whole time, ultimately leading them to a bad guy who was studying them so that he could utilize that connection to get his hands on Professor Xavier. Like, it's kind of like a Rube Goldberg contraption of plot, and I like the idea... Idea behind it, but I feel like the execution is sloppy and a little tough. Like, 117 is really not an entertaining read, unfortunately, as much as I love Herb Trimp getting to draw Wolverine again, as Herb Trimp was one of his creators, as much as I love the writer. This is an issue that doesn't really sit well for me. The idea that Wolverine is just going to kill this old man because he knows he's a robot. I mean, he knows he's a robot. This is something that is an established part. But it's jarring for the reader that Wolverine is just going to slice this old man up. And then the reveal is great. But Wolverine doesn't feel necessarily particularly in character throughout this issue. He doesn't feel out of character. The fact that he's on a deer stalk, not a deer hunt, is good. But this doesn't work for me.
1: Well... I know it's pretty jarring for, to see Wolverine just attack somebody so confidently that it is a robot, but we did see that uh, with the X-Men versus Doctor Doom with Wolverine attacking Stormbot. He knew immediately that wasn't the actual Storm and he wasn't uh, hesitant to attack it. We actually also saw it in the Dark Phoenix saga where the, um, scroll pretended to be Storm and was trying to choke Wolverine, he immediately attacked because he could smell that it wasn't Storm. Again, it's also Storm. Them trying to confuse Wolverine and Storm seems to be a running thing. But I completely agree with what you're saying. 117, 117 tries to set up what 118 is supposed to be but 117 doesn't really have to set up 118 because the way that Charles gets to Professor Power isn't actually through Spider-Man or Wolverine or by them talking about what's going on because Spider-Man and Wolverine don't even know who the villain is in 117. 117 has so much boring plot nothing happens, nothing goes on, nothing is really explained. It's too much of a setup issue, and that really, 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 it's, as you said, is really boring. You don't want to bore your readers with a major setup like that. The only way that that can kind of work is if you're in an annual, and you have those three chapters, which are like three issues back-to-back, but even then, that's way too long to spend on a setup to then have this moral dilemma of professor power trying to save his son but doing it in dubious methods
0: because that is really at the end of the day what sours me on this story is that they want us to feel all of the complications that you're supposed to feel with a character losing their child for professor what's his name professor power they want us to in that regard pity him but i can't bring myself to care And the fact that his son is ultimately collateral damage in Xavier and Mentalo's psychic battle that Xavier wanted no part of, all the more, this was not an issue that pulled at my heartstrings, it just kind of made me go, alright, well, I read that.
2: Hey there listeners, I'm Matthew and I've got a new, well, actually old, extract for you today, but first, how's it going? You doing okay? Are you getting enough water? Good, because today I'm bringing you a bit of a rant with my recommendation, so buckle in. Today I come bearing House of M, the big Avengers and X-Men crossover that leads to a whole shitload of trauma for the X-Men, and pretty much zero fallout for the Avengers. So you know, business as usual. The fallout of this event has affected the X-Line ever since, even up to and past Avengers vs. X-Men. House of M centers on Wanda Maximoff, the Scarlet Witch, and her Bendis-induced nervous breakdown. Six months prior to the event, there was another event titled Avengers Disassembled. In it, Wanda lost her mind, killed a handful of Avengers, and then was spirited away to Genosha by Magneto where he, with the help of Xavier and Doctor Strange, has been attempting to rehabilitate her. It goes poorly, and the event begins with Xavier calling the two super teams together to discuss what to do. Should they kill Wanda, before she breaks reality with her powers, or keep trying to rehabilitate her? Emma Frost, supported by Wolverine, argues for the former, while Captain America adamantly pushes for the latter. Emma makes the single most valid point in the debate. If word ever got out that it was a mutant who killed a bunch of Avengers back and Disassembled, then that would be it. Mutant-human relations would be set back to the Stone Age. Both sides of the debate agree to confront Wanda, but when they arrive, the world goes white. Everyone wakes up to a new day in a new reality, where mutants are the dominant species, humans are oppressed and on their way out, and the House of Magnus reigns supreme. For our named characters, both human and mutant, the caveat is simple, everyone got their wish. Magneto gets to rule a world where mutants thrive, Emma gets to be a highly respected psychiatrist in a dapper-as-fuck pantsuit, Spider-Man is respected and married to Gwen Stacy, and notably not Mary Jane, with Uncle Ben still alive, Carol Danvers is the world's most popular hero, Dazzler gets her very own talk show, and so on. Being a human isn't great in this reality but it isn't half as bad as being a mutant had been in the real universe. And I love it! I love seeing how changing the paradigm alters so much and gets so little about these characters. There's one small problem. Well, two, actually. Wolverine gets his wish as well. He remembers his past. All of it. Which means he remembers the real world, along with his entire, finally revealed history. Or at least it will be in another title, surely. And there's also a new mutant, Layla Miller, who has the power to show individuals their real lives, prior to Wanda rewriting reality. So of course, Wolverine gets the band back together, and they decide to undo what's been done and set things back to normal. Twists and turns along the way, big fights with some truly gorgeous set pieces, high-quality drama all culminate in three little words that, dear sweet God, rock the Marvel Universe to its core. No more mutants. Sorry for the spoiler, but if you're an X-Fan, you've most likely heard about what happens here, and if not, well, the journey there is worthwhile and recommended. I really can't speak about this event without talking about this though, because it's where everything goes horribly wrong for mutants. House of M is a great, exciting, 8-issue event series. On its own, while not perfect, I love it. The art is some of the best out there, the story is tight and engaging, and Emma Frost gets to weirdly somehow be one of the more central characters in the story? Honestly, second only to Wolverine, and arguably Wanda I would say. The problem is that this story doesn't exist in a vacuum. It exists in a wider universe, and the events leading up to it and falling out from it can't be ignored. House of M is predicated on Wanda Maximoff's nervous breakdown, and I need to rant about this for a moment. This and Avengers Disassembled are events that at their core are painfully guilty of the "bitches be crazy trope. Wanda had already dealt with the loss of her children, or golems, or whatever the hell you have when you fabricate babies with a robot. It was a done deal, and then Brian Michael Bendis came along and decided, okay, but what if I use that as an excuse to have her go crazy, even though there's no reason whatsoever for that to happen? Cool? Cool. Or not. It's a bullshit trope, and it doomed Wanda for over a decade. Hell, she's still dealing with this baggage. Yes, it makes some quality Magneto family drama, but the cause of ruining a powerful woman. It's not a great look. And then there's the other side of the story. Wanda's No More Mutants spell, or whatever you'd call it, wipes out the mutant gene almost universally, leaving only a few hundred mutants left on the planet. Conveniently, nearly all of the main cast X-Men are fine, with a few exceptions. Hell, the book even lies to us by implying that Iceman lost his powers, but that's very quickly reversed. Honestly, as a plot point, this spun into a lot of my favorite stories. I fucking love the Utopia arc, and the Messiah trilogy, but it also kicked off this really exhausting trend of extinction plots for the X-Line that are STILL happening as of the current Uncanny run. For fuck's sake, can we just let them live, please? Okay, now that that's out of my system, I want to pull out a couple of specific highlights for House of M because, as I said, I do love it. Even if it's framed by some bullshit that makes me want to scream. First, there's a bit of poetic book ending. The series open with Wanda giving birth, not really, but hey, reality warpers, and it ends with her effectively committing genocide against mutants or at least that's how it's consistently referred to ever since. I am admittedly iffy about comparing we all lost our powers and are now basic boring people to the flat out murder of an entire group, but potato to slaughter I guess. Still, the birth-death dichotomy is a nice touch. Bendis is capable of being a competent writer, after all. I just think he's infinitely more suited to solo titles rather than teams. There's also a moment between Beast, who is not blue in this reality, or Harry, And Hank Pym, which is absolutely hilarious in hindsight. Beast is sympathizing with Pym while discussing how humans as a species will go extinct in the near future and be replaced by mutants. He says, "If the situation was reversed, I don't know what I'd do." Well, about a decade later, we find out, and the answer apparently is fuck up all of space time like a total jackass. That's all for today. Like I said, for as much as I can rant about House of M, it is truly a Great series, and 100% worth your time, even with this baggage. On top of that, it is a critical event in X history. Plus, there's gratuitous hairy shirtless wolverine in it, so... Yeah... Anyway, as always, you can find me on Instagram at Homo. Come for the first rep pictures, say for the high-quality pictures my boyfriend takes of our cat Squeak. Because seriously, the man knows how to take a damn good cat picture. I'll be back next time, but we're staying in Genosha for something a little more astonishing.
3: hello i'm gay geek psychiatrist dr matt connor and welcome back to merry mutant mental health a segment where we talk a little bit about the mental health issues inspired by some of the x-men comics nico and the team are reading on access for podcast the stories this time covered one of claremont's favorite tropes the body switch chris claremont loves mind control. It's like his favorite thing. It's hard to find 10 issues in a row where some psychic doesn't mind control at least one team member, and personally, I think it's pretty annoying as a writing crutch, but it does let us talk a little bit more about what identity means to us if we can't attach it to our own bodies. So often, we define ourselves in ways that are external, I'm X tall, I'm male, I'm white, I'm blonde, I drive a Prius, I'm somebody's husband, I'm decked out in Prada, I'm always on time for my job, I'm able-bodied, I do this job for a living, etc. It's not inherently bad. These are all true statements for somebody at some time, and it's part of how we can define ourselves. But the problem comes when these things change. For a person in a Claremont comic, that means somebody's body swapped you, or mind controlled you. I, I really don't like those stories. But for those of us in the real world, the changes usually come from life, from the passage of time. We lose our jobs. Somebody hacks our bank account and steals our savings we stop being somebody's husband. We lose our looks to age or disease or injury or medication side effect or unhealthy eating and exercise patterns. And that's when external origins of identity prove that they are not enough. Who are we if we're not as hot or rich or married as we used to be? We are our values. We are our thoughts. We're what matters to us. Storm can lose her powers to a body switch. Spoilers, she's going to lose her powers in other ways, for extended periods of time. But whether or not she can summon lightning, she's always loyal, she's always protective. She gains and loses friends. She's even going to be married and divorced by the time Nico and the gang catch up to current continuity. But part of who Storm is involves the depth to which she can form loving friendships. And that's about her, not the body that she's in or the people that she's around. So for you... What are some things you know about yourself that don't change with the weather? Not, I'm good at sports or I'm in great shape, but how about I value my relationship to my body and I try to treat it as well as I can? Not, I have this awesome boyfriend, but I love being in love and I love taking time to get to know my partner. Relationships develop and change But I always love how it feels to learn new things about people that I want to know better, and I value the ability to take time to think of what another person may like. Not I love my job and my status, but my work means a lot to me because it lets me live in line with my values. I care a lot about helping and educating, and this job is a great way for me to do that. But if I wasn't doing that, I'd still find a way to help and educate. That's just who I am. What's great about this kind of exercise is that you can do it now, before life throws that next curveball, and the better you know and understand and trust yourself, the more stable you'll feel when the big stuff happens. It's okay to run this by people you trust, a therapist, a family member, a best friend. We can all use different perspectives on who we are and how we come across. But at the end, it's up to you to own your own identity, and I bet you're going to like who you end up being. Okay, you can follow me on Instagram at MatthewJamesConner, M-A-T-T-H-E-W-J-A-M-E-S-C-O-N-N-E-R. I did just post a picture of my dog eating whipped cream, and that was really cute. Okay, talk to you all next time.
0: So, we've had an amazing time talking about a great two-parter, and eh, two-parter, and a bad one-off. But it's a really exciting time here at X's for Podcast because we have, coming up, one of the most famous issues of Uncanny X-Men ever, Kitty's Fairy Tale, Claremont and Cockrum, Uncanny X-Men 153. That's going to be amazing. Shortly thereafter, we're going to turn our attention to a special three-episode, three-part miniseries focusing on the Contest of Champions. From there, we're going to hightail it back to space while the X-Men journey among the Starjammers once again in uncanny 154 to 159 We've got some amazing stuff coming up and until that jonah where can everybody find you online
1: you can find me not in the space on instagram and twitter at jonah rubino and at jonah rubino.
0: nico where can everybody find you online as always you guys can find me all over this amazing network doing shows like html with my husband kevo who's jonah's boyfriend We do Husbands Talking More or Less, where we examine different forms of media throughout nerd geekery. Right now we're focusing on the MCU again after turning our eyes to the Dark Phoenix saga. I am also part of Now and Again, where we talk pop music, whether it's the Now That's What I Call Music series, or focusing on the discography of amazing pop artists. I also make a hyper-inclusive comic called Kid Riot over at KidRiotComics.com, And music at Facebook.com slash Action Duo. Don't forget to check me out on Instagram, being thoughty at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. All right. That's enough places to find me. So until we're back to Gray Malkin Lane, we'll see ya. See ya.